0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Mother Daughter Team, Dr. Gloria, and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation, with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest is going to be Dr. Irvin Yalom. Dr. Irvin Yalom is a highly regarded psychiatrist and the author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestselling, Love's Executioner, and the international best-selling novel, When Nietzsche Wept. His latest book is Staring at the Sun, Overcoming the Terror of Death. Welcome to the show, Irv.
1: Hello. Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: It's great to have you on the show. You know, I was really interested. I met you years ago when uh, I did a book on in-laws and I did a panel on self-help books and uh, you came on and you had written uh, Line on the Couch,
1: which I loved that book. I thought it was uh, a great it's book. It's going to be a movie soon. They're, oh, is it? Yeah, they're making a movie out of it now. They've got Anthony Hopkins signed up for, the lead, for one of the leads. Oh, how great. It's going to be called Kill the Messenger.
0: Kill uh, the Messenger. I, I like don't know it. why.
1: It's got nothing to do with the plot or anything, but I think they like the sound of it. <laughs> I I kind of like lying on the
2: couch. It was a good good name. Well, um, now you've gone from novels, and now you've gone back to writing a non-novel, right? Staring right. at the Sun. I love the title. I'll, I will say it again, and you can tell us what it means staring at the sun overcoming the terror of death where did staring at the sun come staring from? Staring
1: at the sun comes from a old uh, aphorism written by a, a French writer LaRouche Foucault uh, in the 17th century but he, uh, the, the saying goes that there are two things at which we cannot stare directly at the sun mm-hmm. or at death so staring at the sun is, is a way of referring to that but I, I'm saying in effect that I don't want anybody to stare at the sun, but I do think that there is something to be gained in life by staring directly at death. So this book is about staring right at it, not avoiding it, not covering it over, but staring right at it, and I think uh, that there are a couple of benefits that can ensue from that.
2: You know, uh, when I read the book and I thought about it, and, and I thought about my experience because my son was Heidi's brother and my son was killed in an automobile accident, 17 years old, in uh, 1983. Wow. And
1: um, I think I stared at the sun then. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. right. Well, you stare at the sun when you lose a child. You stare at the sun in many ways. And, and, but one of the ways you stare at your son, and this is a part of grief, is that the the death of the other if someone helps you understand this sometimes the death of the other also brings you into confrontation with your own death Mm -hmm. and that often complicates grief a lot and a lot of grief counselors aren't aware of this aspect of it um but but it may it may compound grief quite a bit because there's some part of you that's grieving for yourself there's some part of you that's in shock because you're being confronted with your with your own finiteness, so I think that therapists need to be sensitive to to this part of grieving too.
2: Right, that that when they're dealing with people who have grief, are you That's saying? It. That it can be difficult. You know, um, one of the things that uh, that I really liked in your book that you talked about was um, the fact you you have towards the end of your book you have a section for therapists and you talk about self disclosure, and you know it's very interesting because we have a lot of professionals that come on the show and I'll ask them to write a little uh, sixty word bio for me um, that we use to advertise the show and. Almost always, even though I tell them that uh, the people we're going to be talking to, um, uh, the people our audience are newly bereaved, many, and, and, uh, and that they are suffering right now, actually, and, uh, and they will give me a bio, I published this and I published that and I did this, and I will email them and say, because a lot of people in the field of grief and loss have had a loss, but we've been trained not to talk about it, Yeah, which is fascinating And so I will email them back and say, can you tell me about, have you had a personal loss? And then they'll say, oh, yeah, that's what got me into the field. And, and, you know, my husband died, my son died, my sister died. You know, and they're they're really, that's what connects us and and humanizes us. But we've been trained not to talk about
1: that. Right. Uh, In this case, they were... Fairly uh, forthcoming, though, and they did talk about it. But many therapists in the actual therapy situation, you know, absolutely refuse to budge on that question and will reveal nothing of themselves. Uh, that's an old tradition, a very bad tradition in our field, and it really came out of uh, early in the field. It came out of uh, uh, the followers of Freud. Although Freud himself, when he was doing treatment with patients, you see, and you see some of the case histories that he's written and that other people have written of being in therapy with Freud, that Freud was quite open. He he was uh, not self-revealing in any way. You know, I was talking to a University of Chicago professor many years ago who was, in, who was in therapy with Freud, and in the middle of the session, Freud's dog, who's always in the room, goes and scratches the door and wants to be let out, and Freud says to him, uh, and then and then uh, ten minutes later, your dog scratched and wanted to come back in the room. And Freud said to the, to the patient, You see, my dog was uh, was getting out of the room because he couldn't stand all the resistance and the garbage you were talking about. Now he's coming in to give you a second chance. <laughs> well, you know, that is not, that's not blank screen. But, but anyway, after Freud, many of the therapists, the analytic therapists, began to lay down this rule for therapy that we were going to be blank screen. Even out of the vision of the patient, so the patient is entirely engaged with his own thoughts and his own self, and the reason for
2: that. Yeah, and Freud's uh, daughter actually made
1: clothes while she listened, right? Yeah. Head of their. Yeah. <laughs> well, the reason for that is that that transference, the idea that the patient will begin to see, uh, transfer important emotions from other people, especially parents, onto the therapist. And then you can learn a whole lot about their therapist and their early life, about their relationship to their parents from that transference. And so if you show a lot of yourself, it will impede that transference. That's the idea behind it, but it's it's totally a bad idea. It, especially, it, especially when you've had a loss because
2: early loss, I don't know, my experience uh, is that um,
1: there's so much anxiety, you can't stand quiet. Of I mean, course, of course. And, and, and at that point, you need more than anything else. You need a sense of, of connection and authenticity and being in a personal relationship. And those things are too valuable to be sacrificed the altar of some, of some uh, you know, abstract idea that, that we want patients to be able to add transference onto us. So now, now to,
2: what if I'm in therapy uh, right now and uh, I have a therapist who is not talking to me? I mean, can I shop therapists if I, if I have grief and loss? Should I try to find somebody? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, sure. The shopping therapists is, is quite common. Uh, I often give patients, uh, when they call me, I, I give them three names and sometimes they, see, sometimes they see all three people and they make a decision about who connects more, who they feel the right chemistry with, who's more human. Uh, every patient I see, without exception, I hardly ever see any more virgins, you know, any therapy virgins. Everyone I see has come out of some other kind of therapy and often dissatisfied with what's happened. That's why they call me. And 100% of them give the same reason for wanting to switch, is that the therapist was too detached, too disinterested, too impersonal. they want to have more of a real, real relationship where there's more honesty and authenticity in therapy.
2: Okay, so what if I go to my therapist and uh, a therapist and uh, first session, uh, and I've, I've never had a mental health history, and I actually had a therapist who wanted me to take antidepressants after Scott died, and I said, no, I don't know, what is your thought about that?
1: That he he wanted you to take antidepressants right away, you mean? Yeah. Oh, well, no, just, well, that's a very bad idea. I mean, uh, antidepressants are, uh, it may be a very good idea if somebody has a really, truly significant depression and is dysfunctional and can't work and can't sleep and not eating. Uh, but to Of course, that, that
2: is the first signs of law, You know, that first month you're going to be not eating, not sleeping, not,
1: you know. sure. Sure. No, I don't. I, that, that's something that I don't use antidepressants very much at all. And uh, you know, all the research now there is a lot of research that's just coming out is just showing me that that we've been overprescribing that antidepressants are not better than therapy for for mild or moderate depressions. Now anybody that has has a loss is going to be sad yeah. and be saddened, and that's part of the work they have to go through.
2: Yeah, I like that you say that it's part of the work that yeah. they have to go through. Yeah, that's an important, an important thought. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Well, what what kind of work do we need to go through if we've had a significant loss?
1: Well, generally, you've got to go through the major losses. Is is saying goodbye, is letting go. um, Is uh, you know, there's the uh, Freud was pretty right on when he talked about his early papers on grief and. And morning, he talked about the, he put it in me- mechanical terms that you've got to kind of decrease your uh, libido, attach attachment. In other words, you've got to you've got to begin to change your attachment to the to the person who's dead and gradually take it back and be able to reattach your energy elsewhere. That's a that's a very mechanistic way of putting it, but there is some there is some truth into that. You've got to be able to begin to turn your attention elsewhere. Uh, you've got to know something about how people go through grieving and, and what they do with the uh, goods of uh, you know the clothes of the other person. I ran groups once for many years of uh, people who had lost a spouse and, um, and this was all part of the work. I thought the group was very effective. And we, we just ran the three month groups, twelve meetings, and I thought those those groups were quite effective in helping people gradually begin to uh, to come to terms with the loss. Be aware that some things like insomnia, for example, are universal. They're gonna they're gonna have to expect that it almost always occurs, um, and as well as the loss of appetite, as well as decisions about what to what to do with the with the. The clothes and the goods of the other people. You know, there are primitive cultures which try to deal with that by having people burn down the whole house and build another house as a way to oh, that's an interesting <laughs> way of getting memory out of there. But 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 the patients I've seen who keep all their spouse's goods right on the dresser and not move anything and make a kind of a memorial to that person—they're going to do—they're going to do much less well. So I think part of the help of children, really, is is really going to help people do that, begin to clear the house, begin to get rid of your spouse's clothes.
2: Well, Heidi and I were saying, Irv, uh, that I remember when I was back in school um, that we had to do Yalom's Curative Factors. It's yeah, <laughs> totally. right. still on the license, Irv.
0: Irv, you're still on the licensing exam. You you know that, right?
2: I'm,
1: for psychologists
0: and social workers.
1: Yeah, also, well, thank you for that.
0: You are you are on the licensing exam. Oh my God!
1: Well, <laughs> things you never know about.
0: <laughs>
1: I remember. I
2: I still think of uh, uh, when I do any group stuff or anything. I th- and, and you know, I run a group for bereaved parents, uh, um, compassionate friends. It's a, a self help group in yeah, Burlingame, that. and uh, <clears throat> I always think about your installation of hope and yeah. universality. Um, universality. <laughs>
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> so, Irv, um, <clears throat> uh, you're still in practice in San Francisco. That's pretty amazing, a couple yeah. of days a week. Wow, good right. for you. Uh, Heidi, you had a question you wanted to ask, Irv, right? Yes, I just wanted to know, in looking at his book and in talking about the
0: idea of overcoming the terror of death and staring at the sun, how do we remain hopeful while we're staring at our own mortality?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I look at that just in an, in an opposite way. I think that, and I have a long chapter on what I call the awakening experience. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that, that being fully aware of your own death can actually awaken you to life. Mm. Um, so that one of the things that have happened to me when I worked with patients who were dying, and I worked for many years, almost a decade, with uh, women who were dying of breast cancer and started groups of them. And These were the very first groups that were done in the country. Um, but, but one of the things that I learned, was that there's a certain percentage of the women, not not insignificant, maybe a third or fourth of people who, at some point in their in the course of the thing, begin to say they've undergone substantial personal change, which is oh can only be looked at. It's got personal growth. They begin to uh, rearrange their priorities in life. They would begin to say. Uh, I only want to do the things that are important to me. I only want to be with people that I really love. I'm saying no to all the other things that I don't want to do. In other words, they're saying cancer cures psychoneurosis, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that what a pity it was that we had to wait till now till we learned how to live. So that's the issue. The issue is that that awareness of your death can can open up life and make you say to yourself, in effect, Hey, I've only got this one life. I want to live it as fully as possible. Uh, and uh, if, if in, in bereavement too, that of course plays a, a very important role. How do you come back to life? How do you use this only life you have? It makes may make life feel more more poignant, more open. Uh, you know,
2: a lot a lot of value it
1: more day to day yes. as, you, as you live it.
2: A lot of uh, parents say to us, or people say to us, and I said it to myself. There was before. Uh, my spouse or child or whatever died, and now there's after, yeah. you know, and uh, and it's a different life, and, and sometimes it's hard for people. It takes people a while to embrace it.
1: Well, most people life. embrace it, but parent, but but uh, almost always uh, with with some help, spouses will be able to do to do that. You asked me about the course of it. You know, my my courses run anywhere from uh, I've seen it go anywhere from a few weeks to about two years is the average course. Uh, in there, and the uh, I know in my own groups of, of patients that I worked with, the men seem to, well, the, the men often pair up much more quickly. Uh, but I don't think they may undergo the same changes that many of the women do with longer work on it. I used to have this phrase saying that uh, men uh, men don't repair because they repair. You know that they don't really change. It's felt different ways,
2: right? Right. <laughs> but
1: but, but the, they don't really change themselves much because they quickly go into another relationship. So they haven't done a lot of the a lot of the grief work. Um, and usually, of, of course, uh, you, I don't know how much you talked in your show about grief. I, I imagine a great deal. Right. Uh, but but the you know the uh, holidays and the major vacations and personal days of the year. Well, every time you go through these, you, you undergo a, a, you know, a great uh, amount of sadness. And certainly one year through the calendar seems to be essential. By the second year, sometimes that has become somewhat attenuated and you go through it twice and maybe a lot of the, uh, a lot of the spouses at that time are, are beginning to enter into and enjoy life again.
2: You know, I want to just, we got an email from Andrew, and he's from the United Kingdom. And I wanted to read this to you because I think it's interesting. He said, Andrew says, I lost my mom exactly nine years ago. She was 55 and suffered a massive heart attack, having no prior problems, diagnosed. I moved away exactly one month before she died and went back when she had the heart attack. I saw her at the hospital, and uh, then she died. And it's been nine years now, and uh, suddenly he has had his own, he calls it, beautiful baby girl. But suddenly I have this pain coming back to me, and I carry this pain with me, and I wonder if I'll ever be happy. And I'm thinking about what you just said. Did this guy... Just go out, and you know he moved away, and and mm-hmm. and uh, and now nine years later, it's coming back. W- what do you say? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it nine years later, this this grief for parents is coming back and haunting him and blighting his life. This is really an excellent reason for going in and getting some professional therapy. Um, the, you know, the, I think therapy can help him with that, and I can't begin to tell you why. This is why he's not we we' don't, we don't know, I don't know Andrew at all, but I'll just make up a patient. I mean, maybe there's a patient uh, that I've seen who can't seem to get over this several years later. Well, generally, it it has to do with the nature of the relationship with the person who died. You know, and generally it's because of somewhat of a dysfunctional relationship. It's very odd, but patients but relationships that are really good and loving and full, uh, the, the the morning period is not extended it's it's always the patients who have unfinished business are ambivalent feelings that that the mourning period tends to tends to be extended. So the, so those that may be one issue I might want to work on with this fictional patient I'm making, not Andrew. I don't know anything about him, but you know that may that maybe there's there's work to be done in understanding what went on there and what we're absolutely. And in. and
2: also Andrew, I would say that um, as Dr. Yom has said, you know facing her death and 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 maybe facing' your own death or whatever can enrich your life, and I think that's such an important part, because, as a bereaved parent, and one of the things that I find very aggravating is when people say you never get over it, and I say, Well, the white Eisenhower did the whole World War II thing, and Leland Stanford built Stanford University, and we're never going to get over it
1: yeah right exactly.
0: you, know? you you don't get over the person, but you get over the pain because you incorporate the person into your life in new and different ways, I think
1: right.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, what if I don't have enough money for individual therapy? Uh, what about um, self-help groups and things? Do you have any thoughts on that for me?
1: Well, I think self-help groups can be very good, or forming getting to a ther- uh, professionally-led therapy group can be very good, or having close friends that you can talk to very openly and honestly about this. But, but sometimes third-person parties are, are just very invaluable for that. Uh, and, you know, go to some clinics, find out who's, who's running bereavement groups, uh, they can be very useful.
2: So uh, get at, get out there and look for something to talk you, about, and yeah. and and get Herb's book because I I think you're going to get a lot about about staring at the sun and and realizing that maybe some of the residual that you might have from a loss may have something to do with your own own terror or experience or thoughts about death. You I've had of-
1: an avalanche of email from people about uh, the book, Sairing the Sun, talking about how it's helped them with their own mortality, their own sense of mortality, and their own grief. So yes, the book can be helpful to, to me. I've had so many people tell me that certain other books that I've written, like novels, in fact, when Nietzsche wept, uh, has to deal with obsessions, and I've had people with obsessional problems. Who, even in the course of therapy, read that book and say, You know, I don't think I need to see you anymore. I got more help from the book than I'm getting from you.
2: <laughs>
1: so, so, anyway, uh, yes, reading will help too if you find the right uh, the right books. And well, er, Irv, will give thank, you those right books.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. You're a light. And it's been wonderful having you on. And uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful day.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Irv. Your work is amazing. Thank but, you so much for all the work you do to help people around the, the world.
1: Oh, I appreciate that, Heidi. Well, that's something else about dying that I mentioned in the book, the whole question of, of rippling and the idea oh, of yes. something of you, something, maybe not your identity, but something your ideas can ripple on after you die, and that can give us a, a lot of solace. Uh,
2: that's a, a wonderful thought to end the show on today, Irv. And, again, thank you so much for, for being on. We really appreciate it. I'm your host,